1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll seek the Lord in prayer before we come to our Bible reading, but let's pray now with our Bibles open before us and ask the Lord's help as we consider his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the preaching of your word. We thank you for the promise that you've given to us that your word abides forever. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that takes up that word and applies it to every heart. And we pray that you would do that in every heart today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are times in life when words are just not enough. I think we've all found ourselves in those situations from time to time where words just can't really express all that's in our heart, all that we're thinking, all that we mean by what we say. And we can't formulate the right sentence to express it all. Most, almost all of the adults here are parents. And if I can illustrate it this way, when your first child was born, and then subsequent to that, when, when each of your children were born, what words could you say to express what was in your heart for this new gift of life that God had given to you? You know, you, you know I loved my baby and whatever, but what words sometimes fall short? We have some phrases that we often use that sometimes just kind of seem hollow and empty because they're just phrases, but they're not enough to, to fully encapsulate all that we mean by what we say. For example, maybe you've done something uh, to hurt another person. And you're, you're deeply and you're truly sorry. And you go to that person and what more can you say but I'm sorry. But those two little words are, I mean, that's not all you mean. There, there's so much more that you mean. There's so much more that you want to say. Or, or maybe you find yourself in a funeral and, and you're going through the line, you know, visiting the family and, you know, we... we phrase, I'm sorry for your loss. And, I mean, it seems trite, but what, what more do you say? Sometimes words just fail us. Or you, you realize how wrong you've been and you know, how you've hurt someone. I, I'm sorry sometimes doesn't do it. Or maybe that phrase that we use so often, I love you. As spouses, we would say that to one another. I love you. Well, it's just three little words. But you know when you say that, you mean, you mean so much more than that. But what else can you say? It seems a phrase sometimes that's just so inadequate to fully express what we mean that we're kind of left with what more can we say? Well, I think you may have guessed where I'm eventually going with this. And that's to that little phrase we use so often of thank you. 
different. Someone does something for you, and you say thank you. Well, what they've done is way more than just a thank you. But sometimes words just fail us to express the full measure of what's in our heart. Well, I've asked you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I want us to look this morning at the last two verses of this chapter. 1 Corinthians 15. Look with me at verse number 57. The Apostle Paul writing here, he says, but thanks. Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I believe you all are already very well aware that 1 Corinthians 15 is really the chapter in Scripture that gives us the details of the theology and the significance and the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul defends this so strongly as to say that if there was no resurrection, if Jesus Christ didn't literally rise from the dead, then everything we're doing as far as church and Christianity and this whole gospel thing, it's all in vain. It all means nothing if Jesus is still dead. And the truth is, Jesus is not. Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. And this is the whole argument and the theology that Paul is putting forward so clearly here in 1 Corinthians 15 and pointing out to us that the resurrection really is that central theme of this chapter. And he gets to the end of of his whole argument of this incredibly important theological truth of the gospel. And what more can he say? But thank you. Thanks be to God. And that's the end of Paul's argument. Thanks be to God. Because it's God alone that has given us this victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in some ways, what more can we say? But thank you for what you've done. Thank you for so great salvation. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you. Thanks be to God. And so I want to consider this phrase this morning here from these two verses. Thanks be to God. And the first thing I want you to see from these verses is the object of our thanksgiving. And the point here could not be more clear. This couldn't be more simple. The object of our thanksgiving, and that is the object is God alone. Who do we thank but God alone? Uh, The last time that I had the opportunity to preach the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I don't know if anybody remembers anything I ever say, but the, the last time that I preached before Thanksgiving I preach from Romans 1. I don't know if Pastor Kimbrough is going to emphasize this when he comes to this part in the book of Romans later, um, but in the list of sins, in the list of all the bad things that God has given 
people over to their reprobate mind and, and all the sinfulness that they pursue, there's that little phrase in Romans 1 that says, and neither were thankful. And neither were thankful. They, they left off thanksgiving. And I, I made the argument in that message, if, I mean, it's been years ago now, but I made the argument in that message that so many have left off thanksgiving. Right? You, you have Halloween and Home Depot and Lowe's, they take down all the Halloween stuff, and the next day you walk in, it's Christmas. Right? Trees everywhere, Santa Claus, blowed up Santa Claus, you know, all this. And what about Thanksgiving? What happened? Where, where is Thanksgiving? Why, are, why do people not focus on that? I did some research, and, and the very small amount of money spent on Thanksgiving compared to this past year retail estimates, $10.4 billion, that's a B, billion dollars spent on Halloween in the United States alone. $10.4 billion. Christmas goes to the estimates for this year, $1.2 trillion spent on Christmas. And where's Thanksgiving? Why are people not thankful? Well, because they don't have anybody to be thankful to. They've ignored God. They don't have God in their life. They, they don't live in the fear of God. They don't live in recognition that they're desperate and they're in need of someone to rescue them from destruction. And so the thoughts of God, God is not in all their thoughts. And so who to be thankful to? You can thank friends and family, whatever, but that's hollow. There's, there's nothing lasting in that. And so when we come to the object of our thanksgiving, we see what Paul says here, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, because God has, has done this. So we can't thank another man. No man is responsible for your salvation. And that's really what Paul is getting at here. Thanks be to God for this salvation that we have. He calls it the victory you know, that's been given to us, and we'll come to that here in a moment. But you know, this, thank you for our salvation. And you can't thank just some other man. You know, the Jews had this problem. Um, you know, Again, we go back to Romans. Pastor Kimbrough is going to get to this, uh, Romans 4. And who is like the supreme Jew? Like the Jew that everybody looked to was Abraham. Abraham is like the trump card. Well, you tell me about Jesus. Yeah, but Abraham. Well, yeah, but Abraham. And the Jews would always play the Abraham trump card. And they were looking to their father Abraham. And he was great and he was wonderful. But Abraham wasn't responsible for their salvation. They could look to another great Old Testament one like Moses. Moses was great, led the people through the wilderness, but Moses saved them. We can't say thanks be to Moses for our salvation. The book of Hebrews, Paul makes an argument concerning earthly priests in contrast to Christ, the great high priest. We can't, we can't, they couldn't thank the high priest. In the Old Testament, they couldn't give thanks to Aaron for their salvation. In the New Testament, they couldn't give thanks to whoever was the high priest at the time for their salvation because those priests, they had to make an atonement for their own sins first. Those priests couldn't save anybody. All those sacrifices that they offered were just pictures and emblems of what Christ ultimately would do, what, what God in the flesh would do. And so our thanks can't be to some other man. We can't, in some weird way, thank ourselves because we've contributed nothing to our salvation except for sin. We, the only thing we've 
you've contributed to your salvation is the sin that needs to be forgiven. The Bible makes it very clear. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. There's, there's no way that we can turn thanks to another man. There's no way that we can turn thanks to ourselves. Because if we were just left to ourselves, then we would still be in our sins. We would still find ourselves completely alienated from the God of heaven. We're not redeemed with corruptible things, but we're redeemed only by the precious blood of Christ. And so it leaves us only with one option as the object of our thanksgiving, and that is our thanksgiving has to go to God alone. And that's exactly what Paul says here, but thanks be to God. And when he says God here, uh, I believe it takes into account all the persons of the Trinity. When we understand what has been accomplished in our redemption, what we have in the salvation of our souls, we understand from the Bible that it's the Father that planned it, it's the Son that secured it, and it's the Holy Spirit that applies it to the heart. And so all the persons of the Trinity are involved in the salvation of a soul. But, but this is the salvation that God has given. Uh, truly, as Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is all God's plan. Salvation is all according to God's purpose. Salvation is all in God's time. And salvation is all of God's execution. God is the one that has worked all this out. You remember back to Genesis in our first parents, Adam and Eve. When they found themselves in need of salvation. What did they do? The natural inclination of their sinful heart was not to run to God. But Adam and Eve, when they found themselves naked and ashamed, the natural inclination of their heart was to run to the bushes, to run and hide, to try to do something themselves. And so they tried. They fashioned themselves aprons of fig leaves. They tried to cover their own nakedness. They, they tried to fix it. They tried to get recognition to themselves. They tried to fix their own problem, only to find that they couldn't do it. And it wasn't them taking the initiative to go seek out God, but instead it was God taking all the initiative to come and seek them out. And to come and, and seek them out in mercy and in grace and to clothe them with coats of skin to to give us a picture of the shedding of blood for the covering, for the remission of sins. And so it's to God that we owe everything. And when we consider what God has done, how can the words thank you be enough? It's not enough. But what else can we say? But thank you for what you have done. And so God alone is the object of our thanksgiving. But I want to move on secondly to consider this morning the subject of our thanksgiving. And that is, what is, exact, what is it exactly that we're thankful to God for? Well, I've mentioned our salvation. I said we, we get to this victory part here in a moment, and here we are in verse 57. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We see that this victory is something that is given to us. Pay careful attention to the fact that it doesn't say, but thanks be to God, which has helped us to earn a victory. You know, that's normally the way we talk when it comes 
to sports teams. A team earns a victory. They fight hard on the field. They, they fight hard on the court. And they overcome the other team. And they earn a victory. It's very... It's not that a victory is just given. You know, we joke about that sometimes, right? That, you know, they... Uh, what is it? Snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And, you know, we, we joke about the referees in on it. And, you know, the referees gave them the game and that kind of thing. But you understand, you understand that's not how it works. But notice here, it doesn't say that we have earned this victory. This is something that has been given to us, this great victory. But what is this victory? What's Paul talking about? Well, let's look in the context here to understand. Go back up to verse number 54. Look at what Paul says. So, again, we, we understand this whole context, all of 1 Corinthians 15, he's been talking about the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of Christ ensures the resurrection of our body. And so we come to verse 54, and look what he says. So when this corruptible, that's our corruptible flesh, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And so what Paul's talking about here is the resurrection of the body. Our bodies, our corruptible bodies, our mortal bodies, putting on incorruption, putting on immortality. So this is the resurrection. And so when that happens, death is swallowed up in victory. If you have any marginal readings in your Bible or any any notes or references, if you have a, a study Bible in your lap, you'll probably find somewhere on your page there at the end of verse 54 that what Paul is doing is he's actually taking a quotation from Isaiah 25 in verse number 8. In Isaiah 25, 8, uh, the authorized version says, he will swallow up death in victory. He will swallow up death in victory. Now, if you're one prone to take notes and you've written down Isaiah 25, 8, and sometime later you go back and read that, You'll read in the King James, he will swallow up death and victory. But if you were to read that in another translation, almost all of the other translations, even the New King James, translates that word victory a different way. It translates the word victory with the word forever. Now that seems two very different words for us in English, victory and and the word forever. But that word, that Hebrew word is used 43 times in the Old Testament. Over half the times that that Hebrew word is used, the King James Bible translates that word as forever. So over half the times it uses that translation, forever. And so if, if you read Isaiah 25.8 in another version, what you'll read is he will swallow up death forever. Where the King James says he swallows up death in victory. Now what Paul is quoted here, um, he's really quoted... He's quoted the Hebrew, but that's beside the point. But he, he's quoted that word victory. Death is swallowed up in, in victory. And, and that's the translation that he has used in this. But really both translations, when you think about them, mean exactly the same thing. They communicate substantively the same truth. Because death has been conquered. There's a victory that has been won by Christ. And so death is conquered. And Christ is victorious over death forever. 
And so the point, if I can summarize what hopefully is not confusing by what I've just said with this word victory and forever, the point is that death can never rise back up and get you because it has been forever Christ. I don't want to take your brains to the wrong place, but I remember when I was a little boy, back when it wasn't gross and back when it wasn't evil and and the wicked vibe to it, on Saturday nights, our family, we would watch WWF wrestling. Like the old, I mean the old school wrestling with Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Nature Boy Ric Flair, you old folks, you don't know what I'm talking about. Back when it was just silly, right? Silly. And then my brother and I, when it was over, we would wrestle each other until one of us got hurt, and then our parents would tell us to stop, and that's what it was. But it was great Saturday nights, right? But you'd watch this. It's all a show. It's all theatrics, right? And they're jumping off the ropes and landing on each other and body slamming each other, and everything's awful. And, you know, the guy's laying there, and you think, well, this has to be over, right? And so he's on him to pin him. I don't know if you've ever watched any of this stuff. And the guy's dead, right? I mean, he's never going to come back. And then one, two, and he flops up, right? And it's like he got another whole breath of air, and off he goes, and he ends up winning the thing, right? It's crazy. It's ridiculous. Death isn't going to do that. Death can't rise back up and get you because it's been conquered. It's destroyed. There's a victory that has been accomplished by Christ that can never be undone. Death can never sneak up behind you and get you if you're in Christ. It's a victory, a victory over that second death. And so you look at Paul's argument in verse 55. We keep on with the context here. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Paul is making another reference back to the Old Testament, this time quoting from from Hosea. But you see, for the believer, death has lost its sting. That's why our brother Greg, on his deathbed, can write his own funeral sermon with a title, Not Afraid to Die. Because death has lost its sting. Death is not the end. For the believer, death is, in many ways, the beginning. It's when we enter into the very presence of Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so that sting is gone because death has lost its victory. Death is not victorious. Instead, Christ is victorious over death. This is what we're thankful for. You know, sin has brought death in three ways. It brought spiritual death. In the day that thou eatest, Thou shalt surely die. And so when Adam and Eve that day, they didn't drop dead. You know, they didn't just drop dead, lay there breathless. But they did die. They died spiritually. And I like the way Joel Tay, when he was here from Creation Ministries, phrased it. At that moment, they began to die. They did die. It wasn't finished yet, but that's when they started to die. And that physical death came upon them. And then eventually those perishing outside of Christ experience that third eternal death. Well, we're born spiritually dead. One day we will physically die. 
But that sting of eternal death, that eternal death for the believer is, is removed. That wrath, that judgment against sin that would require an eternal punishment has been removed because Christ has taken that on himself for those that are his people. And this is the great victory. This is the great victory that we have. But this is a great victory that is given to us by Christ. It is Christ that has secured this victory. And he's given that victory to all those that are are his. He's the one who's conquered death forever and reigns victorious over it. Look at verse 56. Again, dealing with this greater context. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. This might be phrased in a way that is kind of hard to follow, but basically what he's saying here is it is because of sin that there is death. If there was no sin, there would be no death. And it is because of the law that there is sin. We're shorter catechism folks, right? What is sin? Sin is any transgression of the law of God, coming short of the law of God. Without the law, there would be no sin. But death reigned from Adam to Moses because there was a law in place. And men have transgressed that law. And the power of, of the law is that it shines the light on sin. It teaches us and shows us what sin is. That's what he says here in verse number 56. But you see, Christ was able to get victory over death because Christ perfectly fulfilled all that law. Christ perfectly obeyed every single aspect of God's law and committed no sin. By His perfect obedience, He was guiltless. He was born not with the original sin of Adam. He was born with no sin. He fulfilled perfectly the law of God with no sin. And so what He did in living that perfect life was He earned for Himself a perfect righteousness. I think I've said this before in sermons, in sermons before. When I was younger, I remember you know, elementary school, teenage years growing up, and hearing the preacher talk about Jesus being sinless. I understood that. I understood that that made sense, that Jesus never committed a sin but I never really understood why that was so important. I never understood why that was so necessary for Jesus to be sinless until I understood and began to understand the truth of justification and the truth of an imputed righteousness that's received by faith alone. And then I understood that what Christ was doing in obeying the law perfectly was for me. It was a vicarious obedience on my behalf because I have broken His law and you have broken His law. And you know, I grew up understanding a vicarious atonement. Jesus died for my sins. But I never understood before that Jesus also lived for my righteousness. And that's part of the heart of what the Gospel is. Jesus lived 
a perfect life, perfectly obeying the law of God on behalf of His people. And so He lived for me. He died for me. He rose for me. And I would say to you, He lived for you. He died for you. He rose for you. And so when Christ took our sins on Himself and died on the cross, what He was doing was paying the full penalty of our sins. That is, He died on our behalf. He died instead of us. We are the ones that were supposed to have received that wrath and that penalty. This is what Pastor Kimbrough has been dealing with from Romans 1. The wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But Christ has taken that wrath. And this is the victory that Christ has won. This is the nature of this victory. A complete forgiveness of our sins. A complete right standing before the God of heaven. And what can we say? But thanks be to God, which giveth us this victory. Thank you for what you've done. But I want to finish up this morning by looking at verse number 58 at what I'm going to call the evidence of our thanksgiving. The evidence of it. So we've seen the object of our thanksgiving, the nature of our thanksgiving. But I want you to look here at verse number 58 at the evidence of our thanksgiving. And you'll see verse 58 starts with this word, therefore. That word, therefore, at the beginning of the verse takes into account everything that Paul has said about the gospel up to this point. Everything about the gospel, the resurrection. And since all these things are true, how shall we then live? How how do we respond to this? Yes, thank you. Thank you for this. But how do we respond to that? How do we live that? What is the evidence of the fact that we're thankful? Right? You know, sometimes we, we tell our children when we discipline them, they do wrong, and you know, they say, I'm sorry. Okay, well, true repentance involves a change of life. Right? So you're sorry, you're forgiven. Let's see, some, let's, let's see change. Let's see something different. Well, here's the evidence. If we're truly thankful, then it's going to affect how we live. It's going to affect how we behave ourselves. And so this is something that Paul gets to here. Therefore, since all this, this is true about the gospel, about the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brethren, here's how you live. Be steadfast, unmoved. being steadfast and unmovable in faith. One commentator uh, mentioning or, or commenting on that word steadfast, he says it's like an unmovable statue. It doesn't change. Right? You, cancel culture, you take all the statues down, we can't have statues anymore. But you know what a statue is. You look at a statue and you can pass by a statue on Monday and pass by the same statue on Tuesday, and it hasn't moved. Right? It's the same as it was. It's hands pointing in the same direction. It's standing in the same pose. It's steadfast. It's unmovable. And that's how we're to be in faith. We know whom we have believed and are persuaded that He's able to keep that which we've committed unto Him against that day. Steadfast, unmovable. You know, In Providence, we read here Acts 25 and 
you know, the past couple chapters in the book of Acts, Paul has been before these great leaders of Rome under trial, and Paul has not wavered. Paul has been steadfast, unmovable. And he'd been accused of what he'd been preaching about Christ. But he's steadfast, unmovable. His faith was solid. His faith wasn't shaken. You know, for us as believers, trials come all different ways. Trials come and go. But as believers in Christ, with the Spirit in us, we're able to be steadfast, unmovable in Christ. Hebrews, Paul writing Hebrews, he, he tells the, the believers there to cast not away your confidence. Don't, don't cast off your confidence just because of difficulty and trials that come your way. And here Paul, he's saying here in 1 Corinthians 15, as an evidence of, of a thankful heart for what you've done, be steadfast, unmovable in faith. I say trials come and go, but for the believer we can stay focused on what Christ has done, knowing that come what may, it is well with our soul. Knowing that come what, way, come what may, the God we serve is a God that no man can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Come what may, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And we can be steadfast and movable. I mentioned Paul, but you mentioned others. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There as they were threatened with the fiery furnace. Their faith was steadfast, unmovable. They, they weren't going to change their view. They were going to change their stance because of opposition. When Joseph was faced with Potiphar's wife and the temptation to sin. Joseph was steadfast, unmovable. When it came to Daniel, he was steadfast, unmovable. When it came to Elijah at the prophets of Baal, he was steadfast, unmovable. When it came to Noah preaching for 120 years and and people rejecting him, he was steadfast, unmovable. And that's the way we are called to live in faith, steadfast, unmovable. So here told to abound in Christian service. That's the way I'm going to phrase it here. It says abounding in the work of the Lord. We're to be abounding in in Christian service. The people of God should be a diligent and working people engaged in Christian service. Abounding in Christian service. This is an evidence of the fact that we're thankful for what God has done, but an evidence of the fact that we understand this gospel. We understand the the truth that Christ is risen from the dead, uh, the truth that we are in Him, the truth that we have risen with Him, the truth that we're one with Him. We're steadfast and movable, and we abound in Christian service. In this sense, everything we do must be done for the Lord's glory. It's not for us to abound in our own self-achievement. It's not for us to abound in advancing our own ideas, our own agenda. But it's abounding in advancing God's kingdom, God's agenda. 
What does it mean for us to abound in the work of the Lord? What's Paul talking about here? Well, if I can quote one commentator, he says here, Paul exhorts them to practice every Christian virtue. And I think that sums it up for us well. What does it mean to abound in the work of the Lord? To practice every Christian virtue. Wednesday night when I was speaking, um, I quoted Matthew Henry that you know, from, from a, a vine, from a grapevine, you expect grapes. And from a Christian, you expect Christianity. You expect the evidence of what the tree is, the fruit of, of what the tree is. And we were looking at 1 John 15 and, and what it is to bear much fruit. And from a Christian, you look for Christianity. Well, in a sense, this is the same thing here. For us to to be abounding in the work of the Lord is to practice every Christian virtue, as this commentator says. So what we're not talking about here is what some of us grew up with, this term of full-time Christian service. Like, the only way you can abound in the work of the Lord is if you're in the ministry. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's not talking to preachers. Paul's talking to the church in Corinth to abound in the work of the Lord. And so what does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things. It means husbands loving your wives. That's what, that's what it means to abound in the work of the Lord, to practice every Christian virtue. It means for you as a husband to love your wife. It means for you as a wife to respect your husband. That's what it means. It means for you men to be diligent in your work. It means for wives to be faithful in keeping yourself. It means children obeying your parents. It means children being diligent in your schoolwork, obeying your parents and what they've your stage of life in this moment as a student. To, to abound in the work of the Lord means to not argue with your mom about your math. That, that's what it looks like for you as a teenager to abound in the work of the Lord. To be obedient. It means to be faithful in the means of grace. That's what it is to abound in the work of the Lord. To just do what Christians do. We're, we're not rocket, This isn't rocket science. To abound in the work of the Lord is to... to, to practice every Christian virtue. It's just basically faithfully serving Christ. It's living as a Christian. Just doing what Christians are supposed to be doing and and seeking to faithfully, with all your heart, serve the Lord. Mess up every time, but serve the Lord. Fall every day, but serve the Lord. That's what it is to abound in the work of the Lord. To just give it your best. To just live for Christ with all you've got. That's what He's called you to do. And that's how, that's the evidence that you understand this gospel and evidence that you're thankful for this victory that you have in Christ. And I say you work, you do your best. And we fall. And we mess up. And we work and we don't see any fruit from it. But look at how he finishes out verse 8. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
Right? Even those little things that you do for the Lord that, that nobody knows about, they go unnoticed. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That, that private time you spend with the Lord, that labor does not go un, unnoticed. That labor is not in vain in the Lord. The, those private prayers for your loved ones, that labor does not go unnoticed. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Nothing that you do for the Lord is, is vain. You may pass out a thousand gospel tracts and not one person make any response at all. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This Thanksgiving, you might try to witness to every unsaved relative and, and person that you have. And they all completely blow you off and not listen to anything you say. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That cup of cold water does not go unnoticed. That widow's might does not go unnoticed. That, that effort to practice every Christian virtue does not go unnoticed. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. But this is all part of the evidence of a thankful heart, an evidence of an understanding of gospel truth, that you're steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so when we come to the end of considering these two verses, at least in my own mind, it's clear that just saying thanks really is insignificant. It's not enough. There's more to it than that. And so if we mean more than that, if we mean more than thank you, then that's going to spill out in the way that we live our lives. It's going to spill out into a life of of holiness. But the Holy Spirit, when Paul comes to the end of his whole argument of of the gospel and the resurrection and, and the victory of Christ over death, the Holy Spirit leads him to write those words, but thanks be to God. But thanks be to God. And so may the Lord work in each of our hearts, especially during this Thanksgiving season, uh, this thankfulness for what God has done for us. And may we rejoice in him and be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for what we have in Christ. We thank you for that great victory that Christ has secured for us. We thank you for this victory that you have given to us in Christ. We thank you that we have been united to him. And we thank you for that work of grace in our heart that regenerated us from our deadness, that opened our eyes to see our need of Christ, that opened our wills to desire him, follow after him, to put faith and trust in him. And we pray that this would be something that would be lived out and manifest in our life. We pray that we would give evidence of saving grace and that we would be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in every Christian virtue, seeking to live as Christians in everything we do. And we know that this is something that is going to require a great work of grace in us ongoing. 
And we thank you that you have given us that promise that since you've begun that good work, you will continue it until the day of Christ. So continue to work in us all, we ask. And bring us back again this evening to praise your name and worship here again. And we ask it all in Jesus' name.